From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. What can one say about Nancy Silverton? She is at the peak of her profession, owner of the Osteria Moza here in town, as well as in Singapore and Los Cabos in Baja, and Pizzeria Moza plus Kispaca. You might have also indulged in her uber-delicious ice cream, Nancy's Fancy. Nancy is a powerhouse recipe developer who creates engaging cookbooks with recipes that work. Her bread book is legendary, and her recipes are essential because she's a tinkerer in the best way, developing ideas and then playing with them until finally they fulfill her platonic ideal. This obsessive tinkering is at the heart of her new book, The Cookie That Changed My Life. That cookie was made by noted L.A. baker Roxana Julepot, who owns the bakery Friends and Family. I'll let Nancy tell you the story. She made a cookie that I was very angry about because it was better than any peanut butter cookie I ever made. And so it challenged me to make a, well, not necessarily a better version, but one that was personalized by me. But... um Okay, let's say a better version, <laughs> just for the sake of it. The bakers in our town have no lack of ego. I will right. say that. Right, and I pretend that I don't have an ego and that I'm not competitive, but I can't oh stand goodness. when somebody does something better than me. <laughs> Thank you for being so honest. <laughs> so why did this cookie lead you to the idea of revisiting and retooling classics? Okay, so... I guess what was in the air that was uh, infectious in 2020 was that everybody was baking something, right? And we all know that, what were they baking? They were baking sourdough bread. I got COVID, by the way, in 2020, but I didn't get that need to bake a loaf of bread for various reasons. Mostly because you had been there, done that. Exactly. Quite thoroughly. <laughs> exactly. So maybe, but it was what I was experiencing, what everybody else was experiencing was that we had time, right? I never had time before to do something other than rushing off to the restaurant and tinkering with something there. So I had this cookie and I thought, this is a great cookie. I need to make it a Nancy Silverton cookie. And that's kind of what I did. And and by the way, the way it developed, it's more sort of a cookie tart, right? Because it has a peanut butter center and it has peanuts on top. And so it's kind of a hybrid. But after I made that cookie, I thought to myself, you and I were just talking, Evan, that we have thousands of cookbooks on our shelf. And I love cookbooks and I really love to support people that make them. But in reality... How many more baking books do we need, right? Probably not that many because everybody has their version. And so I thought about what kind of baking book that I would want. And I thought I really would want between the covers was every recipe that I really wanted to make at home. Meaning for me to say, you know what I love making at home, Evan? I love doing croissants. Well, that's a bunch of... A bunch of hooey. Yeah, because who really wants to make a croissant at home when there's so many fantastic bakeries now where you can buy a great croissant. Okay. So what I really wanted in the cover between those, in those pages was recipes that I really did want to make at home, but I wanted to really hone in on every single one of those. So whether it was a lemon bar or a pound cake or a banana bread, really look closely and tweak them in a way that made them 
really stand apart. And that's, I think, what I did in this book. One thing I really admire about what you did also is because you have so many close colleagues, other bakers with whom you've had relationships for years and years and who have also written books, there are some recipes where you reached, you knew that to start, that there was someone out there who had already created like the epitome of what whatever that recipe yes, was. like Claudia Fleming's ginger cake. Nobody, not even me, could top that cake. That cake is a perfect cake. So why not just put it in and say, Claudia already does it, but you should know how to do it. See, I love that. I love that. There was a, a recipe that had been recently published in the New York Times, and I had never seen it before, and it was, it's called a Kentucky butter cake. And it was a cake that won the Pillsbury... Bake Off Contest in 1967. And it is simply, if you had to make one cake out of that book, just make that. What I love that you said in the head note was that this cake is a Nancy cake. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to tell you that we have must have the same taste because that cake is also totally- An oven cake. An oven cake. Yeah. So I want you to describe it. I think that what makes it so delicious is after it's baked- it's brushed with a butter glaze that kind of has the same effect as a glazed donut. Like really, what's the best part of a glazed donut is that glaze or the contrast between that soft donut, right? And then that glaze on the outside. So it's basically a white cake that goes in some sort of a butt cake mold. I've chose a beautiful one. That, that I, mold yeah. is unbelievably yeah. beautiful. It's a beautiful one. And that's really it. And it's absolutely perfect. As I was paging through the ingredients list at the beginning of the book, I came across buckwheat flakes. What do you use them for? They were in, and I never would have used them, by the way. It's an ingredient of a what happens to be a gluten-free cookie, or, sorry, cracker, that this German baker in a tiny town next to where I have a house in Umbria would bake, and they're just addictive crackers. And one of the ingredients is buckwheat flakes. And that's the only reason, that, like I said, it's in the, the book. I didn't try to be creative and add buckwheat flakes to a chocolate cake or anything like that. And then that's the other thing. I didn't get creative in the book. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing that young tattooed men that love to cook over grills with lots of fire would be interested in because I didn't do anything creative in this book. If, if you noticed, you know, nothing became like a yuzu panacota or, you know, it's just what we know and what we want, but just manipulated just ever so slightly that it made a difference. You know, another recipe that I'm really like, if you said to me, what recipe besides the cookie that changed my life because it got me in that direction was finally I made a cornbread that I love. And what you wanted from this cornbread was for it to actually taste like corn. Yeah. So what I did was this. I thought, okay, you know what? I'm of the school of if it works, it's okay if you don't make it. So maybe if I've got a can of creamed corn and I added creamed corn to my corn bread, it would make it taste like corn. And no. it was awful. It was so awful. And it looked so awful. But I made it anyway, and it tasted so awful. So that was not the answer. And so I kind of put it aside. Anyway, after many, many, many tries, 
what I finally did and what I had been doing, because I'm also not a fan of whole corn kernels in my corn muffins or corn uh, no, bread. No, you need to break them open you need so to, you get the milk. Yeah, exactly. But what I used to do is I would sh- I would shave them with a uh, Japanese corn shaver, right? But then I would drain it and I would throw away the milk because it's so thin. My baking side of my brain said you can't add all that liquid to your to your cornbread because it'll make it just too dense, and so I would discard it. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to cook that milk, and I heated it up, and it instantly, as soon as it came up to temp, it instantly became a corn pudding. And I folded that into the batter. And I've never seen that before in a recipe. It really tasted or tastes like corn. In the book, you went on kind of a gentle rant about muffins, what they are and what they shouldn't be. Tell us. Well, that gentle rant was, I think, twofold. And I hope both of them are in the book. One is the size. Like, there's nothing for me more unappetizing than to walk into a bakery or a coffee shop and see these giant muffins on the, you know, it's like super size. I just don't like that. So one of them is the scale of the muffin. But the other one, I think that a muffin is not a cupcake. I know it's made in the same mold, but a cupcake is something that's eaten later in the day that's sweeter and lighter. But I feel like a muffin is a breakfast item that starts your day and it should be a little bit more wholesome. So I don't like sweet ones. I like ones that are substantial. And I added a bran one and a blueberry one. And I the blueberry one is a take on one of my favorite muffins of all time. Did you ever have Cafe Fanny's millet muffins? Oh my goodness. Did, is that not the best muffin in the world? A really delicious muffin. And I thought, now that's a base for a blueberry muffin. And so I added blueberries to it. Not that the millet, that Cafe Fanny's millet muffin wasn't perfect, but it was a great base for blueberry muffins because blueberry muffins is everybody's favorite muffin. But in order to have the right texture and everything, it usually takes a lot of sugar and a lot of white flour. And that just doesn't sound like that's how you want to start your day. So one of the things that um, I found so interesting was this technique that you learned, again, I think from Claudia Fleming, for lemon bars. Yes, where you cook to temperature, not yeah. to thickness. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, um, and you know, that was like the book was probably already being published. And I said, stop, because I was at a uh, demonstration in Aspen um, at an Aspen Food and Wine Classic. Well, and Claudia was doing a lemon curd. So my lemon bars, which I tried to do a baked lemon bar and I just couldn't do it. It just, there's something that happens to the oven where it gives, when you bake a lemon bar, it just brings out the egginess. And I just can't, that's why I've never liked lemon bars. They're sweet. And then they have that weird eggy flavor. So I turned my lemon bars into a lemon curd bar. But anyway, I never, ever took the temperature of lemon curd And I know that I've always had more successes than failures, but every once in a while, if you don't cook it long enough, it doesn't set up right so you can slice it. So Claudia was doing this um, demonstration and she cooked her lemon curd to a a specific temperature that I don't remember now. 182. Oh, I was going to say 180, but 182. And I'm like, wow, that would really help home bakers to know that there is a temperature so you don't have to just give a description of the you know consistency and i think it helps all humans to take a lead from you someone who people could arguably say had nothing more to learn 
and you are constantly still yep. always learning. Oh, 100% always learning. That was famed chef and restaurateur Nancy Silverton. Her latest book updates classic bakes. It's called The Cookie That Changed My Life. Head to kcrw.com slash goodfood to get the recipe for her Kentucky butter cake. Mm, yum. Coming up, James Park hasn't gone a day without a dollop of chili crisp in at least two years. This is an obsession I can really relate to. He shares his passion for the spicy condiment next. Welcome back to Good Food. James Park has a thing for Chili Crisp. A self-described Chili Crisp ambassador, he came upon the spicy Chinese condiment later in life, as most of his early food memories included kimchi. When James discovered the dollop that would change everything, Chili Crisp would become an indispensable part of his life. Hi, James. Hi. I feel the same way about Chili Crisp. I'm so glad. The feeling is mutual. (laughs) (laughs) So you didn't, you're Korean. You didn't grow up with Chili Crisp. When did you first discover it? Uh, So I first really came to the world of Chili Crisp when I moved to New York City. So I grew up in Alabama, which is the state that I wasn't really exposed to a lot of like ethnic um, grocery stores or, and there was just no good access to a lot of ingredients. So when I really explore and came to New York and like I found myself in the grocery aisle and Hong Kong supermarket, which is one of my favorite grocery stores in Chinatown. And there were just, you know, jars filled with the entire aisle that was the iconic Laogama. It really intrigued me of like, what about this brand that was just taking the entire aisle? And I was just really fascinated by the latest face and I picked it up and the rest is history. So how does Chili Crisp differ from Chili Oil? Yeah, I think a lot of people use those uh, terms interchangeably, but think of it as that chili crisp is a combination of chili oil and a crisp, which could be the part of chili flakes or any other flavoring add-ons like fried garlic or fried shallots. But chili oil is, we're just talking about the infused oil itself, so you would not see any sort of like additional ingredients in it. What was your kind of aha taste bud moment that opened up your chili crisp imagination, so to speak. I will never forget this uh, delicious moment and it involved with fried chicken and specifically the ones from Popeye's. Um, I was having a wonderful fried chicken feast from Popeye's uh, as one does and you should get mashed potatoes and biscuits. And I was building my perfect bite of that warm buttery Popeye's biscuits and you open them up and you slather those creamy savory mashed potatoes and you kind of shred those uh, juicy chicken thigh part and then you cover that with a giant chunk of chicken skin and then you add a dollop of chili crisp on both biscuit the other side the top part and on top of fried 
check and scan and you close it and you kind of mold it into the perfect bite. And when I took a bite of that, it was just like the whole new world was unlocked in front of me and the crispiness of fried chicken skin and the savoriness and a little crunch from the pepper flakes of spicy chili crisp. And it was just like an unforgettable moment. And ever since I was just always discovering what are some new ways that I can pair with chili crisp. And now I can never stop thinking about that. So there are two essential things to consider when we're about to make the perfect chili crisp. What what are they? So the first one is oil and the second one is pepper flakes and any sort of add-ons. So there's a chapter in my book that kind of shows about here's how to make your perfect chili crisp formula. And the oil flavoring chili flakes, these are all really um, the wild cards that can make your chili crisp taste so differently. So what makes my chili crisp taste so different is the blend of a different chili flakes, which are kochukaru. It is Korean red pepper flakes and Sichuan pepper flakes that don't have the tingling mala taste, but it has the signature bright uh, spiciness and Aleppo pepper flakes, which has the subtle but like deeply red, beautiful color when it's infused with oil. And then in terms of oil and other flavoring, I just go with a canola oil so that the flavors of pepper flakes shine. But I also think you can have really wild, fun, delicious chili crisp by using using flavor oil such as beef fat or duck fat or even lard and other flavorings that you add such as soy sauce, brown sugar, dried onion, you know, fried garlic, anything that uh, any ingredients that really speaks to you uh, that feels like it's a representative of who you are and your flavors, um, you can just kind of create the perfect blend of that. And those all just decide your ultimate amazing chili crisp. Um, so this morning I had two fried eggs fried in olive oil topped with a copious amount of lao gamma chili crisp. Um, eggs seem to be the gateway ingredient for many different hot sauces. What are some of the ways that you marry eggs and chili crisp in a recipe? Yeah, uh, so chili crisp with catini carbonara, uh, that one, I mix my chili crisp with egg yolks and that kind of creates this beautiful orange color and it cuts down the richness of egg yolks when it's made into like a bucatini uh, carbonara sauce. Uh, that's one of the ways, but the other way that I really love that ultimately opened this world of chili crisp was frying eggs in chili crisp. Uh, chili crisp has that delicious flavoring, whether that is uh, fried shallots or garlic, that really seasons the bottom of the eggs and it makes the edges of the eggs crispy. And the residual oil from chili crisp, um, it fries, almost poaches in the flavorful oil. So when you are done with making a fried uh, chili crisp fried eggs, they just, they kind of tastes like the best version of eggs and in a different way that if you were to just make uh, olive oil fried eggs and finish with on top because as the eggs get cooked, they absorb all that delicious flavors of chili crisp around the edges. So each bite is perfectly seasoned. You also have a savory morning oats that you make that includes chili crisp. 
Yes, I love oats. Growing up in Alabama, I didn't really see that there were um, oats that could be uh, savory. But later in my life, I saw that a lot of people were using oats as a way to make congee. So that really changed the way that I approached to oatmeal. And the savory oatmeal is kind of my take on of combining my love for flavorful congee and oatmeal. And by cooking and making a quick flavorful broth by mixing water, miso, and chili crisp, the base to cook oats is really, really delicious. And whether you're using grits or oats or even rice, uh, you can really make flavorful, delicious mush. And it's a perfect way to start your day. Tell us about your fascination with all things Ina Garten and the recipe she inspired. Oh, I mean, she is my mom that I wish I had, but I don't have. You know, she is just someone who taught me what regular American cooking would be like. I didn't really know what other households were making and the way she was just like enjoying and the food and how she showed her love through uh, her signature roast chicken and the way she just welcomed people. And she really used food as a way to show herself, show her love to people and to bring her friends together. And that's when I really saw that food was something more than just, you know, a fuel for your energy. And I loved how she was using food as a platform to share her stories, to connect with other people. And ultimately everything that she has done through the recipes and her life in general and her marriage with Jeffrey uh, have been really my uh guide and how to live the best life like Queen Ina. I love that. Tell us about your skillet roasted chili crisp chicken and vegetables that she inspired. Yeah, that's such a great recipe. Uh, I went through different versions of that because it was hard for me to control the right amount of oil for the chili crisp so that it doesn't come out burnt. So what I really ended up based on what Ina was also suggesting was making this oil rub uh, that uses chili crisp and uh, uh, herbs as well. And once I make this like an olive oil, chili crisp, paprika uh, situation, I kind of rub it all around the chicken. And she also showed me the beauty of the spatchcock chicken so that it cuts down the cooking and there are more ways that you can add flavors and all the vegetables and the simplicity of just roast chicken and how a simple recipe can really bring the level of comfort. Um, this is truly my homage of everything that she has taught me about how to make the best roast chicken. Mm, that sounds so good. For many of us that have fallen under the spell of chili crisp, we quickly learned how delicious a spoonful was on a bowl of ice cream. What, oh, yes. <laughs> what are some of your favorite ways to incorporate it into dessert dishes? 
Yeah, uh, I do want to share my uh, sad slash failed experiment as I was exploring with uh, how to incorporate chili crisps into my dessert. Uh, so I thought that I could just use a regular spicy lagama chili crisps into my dessert. And I made um, the spicy peach crumbles, which I thought, oh, a little bit of spice to the peach as a cook, it would be great. And I made it and it was so bad that I could not even taste it. Just imagine really warm cooked peaches with garlic and scallions. Those two flavors just did not go together. So it kind of put me back to the drawing board of how can I still introduce the magic of chili crisp, but in a dessert form so that it still complements with the sweetness of desserts. And that helped me come up with this chili crisp that I developed called Very Nutty Chili Crisp. So that only has the essentials. So oil, a different blend of pepper flakes, salt, sugar, and a variety of nuts. I really loved uh, nuts in my desserts because it adds like that wonderful nutty flavors, but also a nice crunch texture. So by having this dessert, um, I kind of... Um, I started this new world of savory, spicy desserts and I never thought it was possible. So adding a little bit of that in my pound cake or a little bit of that on top of ice cream, you can really top that dessert chili crisp on top of everything and all the desserts and you will fall in love with a new third perspective of a flavors and dessert that you've never experienced. I love your book. Thank you so much, James. Thank you so much. That was James Park talking about his favorite fiery condiment and the subject of his new book of recipes, Chili Crisp. We've got a recipe for his Ina Garten-inspired skillet roasted chili crisp chicken and vegetables on our website. Head to kcrw.com slash goodfood. Here is my hot tip for your future self. Start making vanilla extract now and it'll be ready for your 2024 holiday gifts. We've got the scoop on which beans and booze you need to make your own extracts next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. I've had my own quart of vanilla extract that I started at my restaurant, Anjali, over 25 years ago. It's a murky-looking jar of rum and spent vanilla beans, but the flavor is extraordinary. So when I saw that there was a new book out on the art of extract making, I knew we had to cover it. Authors Paul and Jill Fulton are here to demystify the process. Hi. Hi there. Hi. When and where was vanilla first discovered? Well, I think it was the Teutonics of Veracruz, Mexico. They're believed to have been the first to cultivate it. Then the Aztecs were known to use vanilla to uh, sweeten their chocolate. And then when uh, Hernan Cortez uh, uh, explored the region, he brought vanilla back to King Charles V in 1519. And it uh, was popular, obviously, because of its aroma and taste, and it quickly spread um, uh, down to the French islands off the coast of Africa. And now today, 70% of uh, the vanilla in the world is produced in Madagascar. And what plant does it come from? It comes from a vine. It's an orchid that grows on a vine. In fact, it's the only fruit on the planet that actually comes from an orchid. It's so I've been I've been lucky enough to see it. Um, I think the last time I saw it was in Costa Rica oh. um, to see it grow. And it's just so fascinating to see it and to see what the pods look like when they're green. 
they look like a green bean, don't they? Exactly. Um, how many species of vanilla bean are they? And and can you briefly describe how they're harvested? Well, there's actually hundreds of different species, and many of them don't even produce fruit. We use mostly um, three different kinds of um, species. We use the planifolia, the tahitensis, and the popana. Commercially, um, the FDA only approves two of those, the planifolia and the tahitensis. So when you're doing DIY extracting, you get the pompona um, as an extra bonus to get to try out. Oh, that's really fun. And are there noticeable um, nuances between each one of those species? There are. So, well, the taste differences between each are noticed most uh, when you get into the regions where the beans are grown. But there are some broad distinctions in taste and aroma between species. So, the planifolia is the most common vanilla that most people are used to. When you think of vanilla, you're probably thinking of a Madagascar planifolia. It's buttery, it's creamy, it's sweet. A tahitensis species is always a little bit more fruity. It's typically a smaller vanilla bean, and it has a fruit undertones where you'll pick up a little cherry or a little apricot or a little plum. The pompona is a super fun bean. Um, they come from southern Mexico and then there are large ones that are grown in Peru. And one bean can be eight or nine inches long and it can weigh over an ounce. And they're very rich and earthy with hints of like figs and bananas. And why aren't we allowed to buy those in the markets? You can buy them in the market, but the FDA sets requirements as to what they call pure vanilla extract. And within the um, requirements that they have uh, currently accepted, they accept both planifolia and tahitensis beans. I think the reason they accept them is, or, or that they, they encourage the use and they put those into their, their standards is because they're the most widely produced and the most readily available beans. The others are very, very difficult to find. And so commercially, you're you're not going to get extracts with planifolia and tahitensis, but as Jill said, at home when you're making them, you can expand into pompona and then even other varieties like bahiana and cribiana and others that are outside of those two. And, and when you say tahitensis, is that what we consider to be Tahitian vanilla? Oh, that is such a great question because people, uh, they're often called Tahitian vanilla, but what they're referring to is the species, not the origin. And so it is quite frequent that you see lots of people refer to Tahitensis vanilla beans as Tahitian vanilla beans. So yes, it is true that within Tahiti, they grow Tahitensis vanilla beans, but Tahitensis vanilla beans are also grown in Indonesia, in Papua New Guinea, in Ecuador, and in other, uh, other areas around the world. Did I, did I miss any, Jill? Oh, I was just going to say that Ecuador is one of my favorite beans. It, it has a hint of apricots and plums, and wow, it's, it's one of our favorites. Could you tell us what the difference is between vanilla extract and paste? Well, a vanilla extract is made uh, primarily by using alcohol and a vanilla bean and extracting the vanilla oil from the vanilla bean into the alcohol solution. Whereas paste is used or paste is made in, in it's a much more complex recipe where you're actually blending up all of the vanilla, the pod, the seeds, you're straining it, you're adding uh, agave, you're adding other sweeteners to it to be able to have a finished solution that uh, is full of like all of the little vanilla speckles as well as the vanilla flavor. So we want to make our own vanilla extract. What do we need? 
Oh, just booze and beans, right? <laughs> that's, that's easy. What, what kind of booze are we talking? Vodka? Oh, well, you know, it's we we come across that all the time. People are like, "All you need are booze and beans, and you're good to go." What do you need to write a book about, right? And we have so many questions after that. So let's start. Tell us what we need to do to begin. So it's one ounces of vanilla beans to every eight ounces of alcohol. And that's, that's sort of the at-home ratio that makes uh, sense to people at home. So if you look at the FDA minimum, uh, it would actually be 0.83 ounces of vanilla for every eight ounces of alcohol. We, we just round up because uh, it's easier to use for at-home extract making that it's one ounces of vanilla beans for every eight ounces of alcohol. Um, the most common alcohol that people use in their first vanilla extract is typically vodka because it's tasteless and odorless and it allows the smell and the aroma and the taste of the vanilla bean to come through sort of unencumbered. But a lot of people branch off from vodka and you can use rum. Uh, People use bourbon for a smokier alcohol and they branch off even further where we have extracts that uh, we're using brandies and cognacs and some people even use tequila. We're seeing Japanese whiskey being used. We're seeing Jameson Iris whiskey being used. We're even seeing scotch being used for various extracts. But most people begin with uh, either a vodka, a rum, or a bourbon that is 35% alcohol, which is 70 proof. And we, we know that there are different grades of vanilla beans. Will a grade A bean result in a better extract than using a grade B vanilla bean? Grade A and B will both produce wonderful extracts. Um, grade B is a little bit drier and stiffer, but once they're in the alcohol they'll extract just as well as the grade A. The wonderful thing about using grade A is that um, you have all of the seeds inside of the beans. We like to call it caviar because it kind of looks like caviar. And so you can also use those in so many different applications in addition to just your extract. You can put it in all of your uh, custards and ice creams and puddings and you know all those things where you love to see all of those beautiful beautiful vanilla flecks. And and you miss out on that with using the grade B. But if we're talking just extract, I think you will get equally good extract using both grade A and B. So if we have grade A beans, should we be scraping out the seeds, what you call caviar, to use in baked goods and use what's left for extract or should we use the whole pod? There's a lot of, uh, there's one group of people that love using whole vanilla beans because it preserves the caviar inside the bean during the extraction process. There's another group that likes to slice the beans open, which essentially spills the caviar into the solution. So then the extract has all of those little seeds at the bottom. But what it does is it puts the alcohol in contact with more surface area of the bean pod. Um, And then there's uh, others that slice the bean open. They scrape out the caviar. They use the caviar for cooking. So they have those fun little specks and whatever it is that they're making. And then they leave the bean pod in. The reason that works is the majority of the vanillin oil that is used in extraction actually comes from the bean pod and not the caviar itself. There's still some flavor in the caviar, but most of it's actually going to come out of the pod. And, and how do you store the caviar if you're preparing extract and you're not quite ready to bake that day? 
I just leave it in the beans until I'm ready to use them. That makes I, sense. I yeah. <laughs> we, we actually say the very, the very best place to store vanilla beans, even when you receive them, is put them in your alcohol solution. They're not going to go bad while they're sitting in alcohol. And then whenever you're ready to pull out the caviar, just grab the beans, slice it open, harvest the caviar. Wow. That is really, really interesting. Now, does the process of the volatile oils that give us so much aroma going into the alcohol, does does there need to be a stage where the alcohol is heated at all? Or does all of this just happen at room temperature? Everything that we do at home and in our kitchens is all done at room temperature. We put the beans uh, in the alcohol. We seal the container. It's a glass container. We put it in a cold, dark place and we leave it for a year. And in our experience, it takes about a year for the real essence of the vanilla bean and the aroma to reach sort of maximum sweetness. And what we have found as we've compared our at-home extracts with commercial extracts is, you know, there's 300 flavor compounds in each vanilla pod. And the more delicately that you manage the vanilla pod, the greater the likelihood that those flavor compounds stay intact and allow you to experience a richer, sweeter vanilla. And so in our experience, time is something that we can do at home that commercial extractors don't want to do that allows you to get the full flavor compound experience out of each individual vanilla pod and to make an extract at home that is absolutely remarkable and much more complex than anything that you find at the grocery store. So interesting and so useful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. That was Paul and Jill Fulton. Their book is The Art of Extract Making. The book has more than 40 recipes for extracts from vanilla to nut, coffee, and even fruit extracts. If you want to get a head start on your 2024 holiday gifts, we've got instructions for making your own vanilla extract on our website. And they also offer gift sets. Find all the info at kcrw.com slash goodfood. The Market Report is on deck, and this week we've got ideas for how to incorporate farmer's market ingredients into your holiday tablescape. That's next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's head to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, where Jillian Ferguson has some outside-the-box ideas for seasonal produce. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. We all know the farmer's market as a place of inspiration for cooks, but people of all disciplines come here to be inspired. Sofia Moreno-Bungue is the owner of Isa Isa, a floral design studio known for using local and foraged flowers, branches, pods, and fruits. With the entertaining season in full swing, I thought it would be a good time to check in. Hi, Sofia. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. So I'm curious, as a floral designer, how do you approach the farmer's market? Well, as you said, we like to work seasonally. So we always come here sometimes with an, an idea of what's in season and what we need to get and sometimes just to see what's available and see what we can work with. I'd love for you to name a few seasonal ingredients that you've seen at the market recently and just talk us through how you might use them either in an arrangement or in like a whole installation. Um, yeah, so lately we've been using a lot of pomegranates and honey nut squash, the little ones that are so cute, um, persimmons. And we've actually been doing a lot of topiaries lately. So like little 
they almost look like trees, like a pile of fruit in the shape of a triangle, like a little tree. Oh. A lot of people have been requesting that. Um, and we'll make like a little tablescape with a few of them, maybe wrap some like passion vine uh, around them to sort of make it more wild, which is also like a local thing that we get. I love that so much. So maybe we can talk about the actual construction a little bit. When you say you're making a topiary out of fruit, walk us through what that process is like. Is it something that people could do at home? Totally, yeah. Um, There are a few different ways to do it. It depends on the size of the fruit or vegetable. Sometimes you can get like a styrofoam cone and you can like um, use stakes and stake the fruit to the cone like in a gridded you know, structured format. Mm-hmm. Or I think an, an easier way for like bigger fruit is to use like a bendable wire and you stake a hole through the fruit and then you string the fruit on the wire. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, usually it has to be about, you know, maybe six feet long in order to make a spiral topiary. So you string it and then you spiral it, just like layering it on top of each fruit on top of each other. Fascinating. I love knowing that. Another thing I've seen many floral designers do, and also just people here at the market who are shopping, is to buy branches with the fruit still on it. What are some branches that people can look for right now? There are some persimmon branches with fruit on them. We used those for a big installation for Thanksgiving for someone, and we just had on their mantle place, just like tons of branches with persimmon on them. Um, We've actually been using a lot of citrus on the branch, which is not necessarily super ripe yet, Mm -hmm. but that's actually better because then it doesn't fall off the stem. We've been using those for wreaths. We make holiday wreaths that you hang on your front door and we'll stick, you know, branches with citrus on them to make like a very California style wreath. And you mentioned pomegranates. When you use pomegranates, do you use them whole or do you crack them open? Both. So for the topiaries, we'll use them whole and then we'll sometimes style around the topiary with like cracked open pomegranates. I like obviously seeing the inside. It's like they're jewels, you know? So it's really It looks like a still life painting when I see that. It's amazing. And I know you're looking for seasonal items, but what other factors do you think about when you arrive at the market and you decide what you're looking for? So sometimes we'll have a color palette in mind. We use a lot of green because that's so versatile. We'll use a lot of like bitter melons, those little um, cucumber melons, I think they're called, that are like white and green, variegated. Mm. They're like the size of like a giant grape and they are green and white and they're just very cute and cool. A lot of those variegated bean pods that are like pink and purple also kind of look tie-dyed a lot of like little eggplants, purple. We use a lot of purple and green. Somehow that really works well with like florals. Those colors really work. And when you're incorporating things like that, that are smaller, that aren't attached to the branch, how are you putting them on the table? We usually make like little piles, you know, just like a mound of things next to an arrangement or um, sometimes we will string them together still and make like a a string of beads kind of thing with different smaller fruits or vegetables and like string them through arrangements like a garland, you know. We do that with flowers and we do it with fruits and vegetables. Do you have any particular vendors that you like to work with here at the market? Yeah, I work with um, a lot of different vendors. I love going to 
Weiser, and then Stephen Murray. I've reached out to Stephen before and asked him if he has anything weird on his farm that he wouldn't necessarily sell at the farmer's market. And he once provided me with these like tiny little black dates that come from a palm tree and they smell like vanilla and they're not only are they actually delicious, they're like little tiny candies, but they looked really cool on a table with flowers and arrangements and yeah. And when you do these installations for big events, do people like take things home and eat them afterwards? I always tell my clients, like, please take them home and eat them. And if they don't, we always come to break down the event and we always like save as much as we can because we're little squirrels. (laughs) (laughs) How awesome. Okay, Sophia. Well, thank you so much for the inspiration. Thank you for having me. That was Sofia moreno Bunge. She's the floral designer behind Isa Isa. You can follow her at Isa Isa Floral on Instagram. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And special thanks to Laura Kandarajan and Gary Masiha. This year is almost over. And if good food was there for you, through it all, please make a tax-deductible year-end gift today during KCRW's season of giving back. Do it now at kcrw.com slash give. Like you, I listen to a lot of podcasts for free. Now's your time to show us your appreciation and donate before the year is over. Start a new holiday tradition and support KCRW Public Radio by December 31st and your gift will make an impact all year long. Thank you for listening and thank you to all of our KCRW members. We couldn't do this without you. I'm Evan Kleiman and I'll be back next week with an all new episode of Good Food. Good Food.